You're listening to The Rights Pod, a podcast by the Center for Human Rights and International Justice at Stanford University. I'm Kira Jasper, and you're listening to The Rights Pod. In this episode of The Rights Pod, I sit down with Stanford alumni Ibrahim Barmal, Carson Smith, and Alina Uchada to talk about the paths not taken, the opportunities that did and didn't work out for them, and what it means to craft a life with human rights as a guiding principle. Well, thank you all so much again for agreeing to come on to this podcast to talk with us today. Just to get started, um, can you all please introduce yourself, telling us who you are, when you graduated, and what you studied, um, and what you're doing now? So, hi, everybody. I'm Alina Utrada. Um, I was one of the first class of human rights minors at Stanford. I graduated in the class of 2017, and um, I majored in history, and um, then I did my master's in um conflict transformation and social justice at Queen's University Belfast. And I'm now doing a PhD in politics international studies at Cambridge University. Hi everyone, my name is Ibrahim Bormal. I was in the second class of human rights minors uh, and I double majored in comparative literature and international relations. Um, I graduated in 2018, I don't know if I just mentioned that. Um, so most recently I, uh, came back from working in East Java for around 10 months. Um, I was working in a small province called Jember, uh, and I was a visiting fellow at the Center for Human Rights, Migration, and Multiculturalism. Um, got cut a little bit short because of COVID uh, by a few months, uh, but I was fortunate enough to have another opportunity lined up upon coming back, and so that's what I'm doing now. Uh, and so what I'm doing now is I am a, um, a planning budget and fiscal analyst at the Allegheny County Department of Human Services. Um, and so there my work is focused on integrating race equity metrics into government services, uh, human, human services. Um, hi, I'm Carson Smith, Carson Smith. Um, I graduated from Stanford in 2019. I did a major in political science and a minor in Native American studies. Um, Let's see, I then went to Oxford immediately afterwards and have just finished up an, an MPhil in sociolegal studies. Um, so I'm still figuring out what exists next after this, but um, yeah, finished up there. Thanks so much. So taking a bit of a time travel back to right after you graduated or during your senior year at Stanford, what did you think you wanted to do right after you graduated? And in thinking about scholarships to continue your academic pursuits, what were you looking at? Um, and what did you think was available at that time in addition to things that you later maybe sought out afterwards? Okay, so throughout my undergraduate degree, I'd been studying uh, conflict resolution specifically in tribal communities. Um, so both in my own tribal community, the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma, but like also then in um, partnering with indigenous peoples across North America. Um, and so that was an extremely like I, I loved studying that and I'm still working on those projects now. Um, but I wanted to continue to study that for a while, um, or to at least to continue studying conflict resolution. 
Um, one of the big issues I had when I was an undergraduate, uh, especially while well, doing my undergraduate thesis, but like just in general, was that I didn't feel like I had the words, I didn't have the words or experiences to um, explain what was going on in tribal communities to people who weren't from tribal communities. So I was really struggling to connect with people who were outside of indigenous communities. Um, so that was one draw to go into a master's, uh, master's program was just to be able to share those experiences and draw connections between other alternative dispute resolution mechanisms and conflict resolution mechanisms. Um, but then additionally, I was at this point and I'm kind of still at this point, so I'm not sure it actually solved it. But I was like, do I want to go to law school? Do I want a PhD? I don't know what, what's next for me. Um, so maybe if I put myself into another year of academia, that'll solve my problem. Like that'll give me the answer that I want. I'll know if I want to do further academic studies. And it didn't really solve that for me. Um, I'm sure for some people it does. Um, but it, it, you know, I thought maybe more research experience would help me figure out what I what I wanted to do. Um, and so when I I kind of found out about all these scholarships when I was a junior, I had studied abroad at Oxford the fall of my junior year. And when I was there, they did this brief little session about what if you want to come back to Oxford for masters or PhD studies? How would you get here? What do scholarships look like? So I started thinking about it um, studying abroad for my master's degree when I was doing my study abroad portion. And then thought, yeah, maybe I'll continue. That sounds great. Um, so I had heard a lot about the roads. Like that's mostly what people talked about. I also kind of from an early period of time knew there were some other scholarships around Oxford, but wasn't really sure how to access those or what to do with those. Um, so I came back in the winter, spring of my junior year and started interacting with like the Bachel Center. And so they started giving me that information. And then around that summer, I decided that I wanted to apply. Um, yeah, but, but basically, like, I, I went into a master's degree because I didn't know it was next and continuing on with academia to a certain degree felt like a good next step. Um, and, you know, I'm 23. And I've spent most of those years in, in education and academia. So I don't, you know, I still am learning the life skills outside of this, I think, uh, a little bit. So let's see, I, I graduated in 2018. So that's almost going on, on three years. Um, but we applied to these scholarships um, in 2017, right? So, so three, three years really full since I first applied, uh, was thinking about what, what to do after graduating. And, and I, think, I think for me, I had a really fortunate undergraduate experience, a lot of it having to do with um, speaking to the Human Rights Center early on, I was hesitating saying Honda Center, uh, the, the Human Rights Center um, early on, like literally when they were kind of revving up, which was my sophomore year, I, I met Jesse at a, I don't even remember what it was, but it was like some type of international service workshop. And, and so I had, I had a really great undergraduate experience in which like my summers were really formative because that was where I could have direct experience with working with the communities I wanted to support. And so, if Stanford had a migration studies major, that's probably what I would have majored in because that was my focus, both in comparative literature and international relations. So, um, you know, I had this undergraduate experience that uh, that I was so lucky that that I that allowed me to really see a lot of problems firsthand when it came to migration to, to migrant communities. Um, 
And so I knew, and here's like the dissonance and maybe we can talk and like unpack this dissonance in this podcast. I knew that the places where I learned the most was not in a classroom, but was working in communities. And I think like most Stanford students will say that, like where they learn the most is through other people, whether it's through Stanford peers, whether it's through an internship, whether it's through, the, through like mentorship outside of the classroom. So I knew that I, I was learning the most outside of the classroom, and yet I was pursuing things that would put me back into the classroom, right? Um, and I, I've been thinking about that, and, and I really, I struggled to admit it because who wants to admit this? But I think it was because, like, I was trying to get the next badge of honor, right? I was trying to beef up my, uh, my, the, my, my um, the prestige on my resume, um, and that's why I was applying to the Rhodes and Marshall. And like, it sucks admitting that because like, I'm, I, I fell for that trap, but like, that's what it was. And I, and I'm not saying that everyone who's for sure, everyone who is applying, for sure, everyone who is applying for that is not <laughs> um, doing it for those intentions, but that was the case for me. And so when I look back, um, and I'm, I'm jumping a little ahead, I think, in terms of advice to people who are in that position now, I think, ask yourself, I wish I asked myself this, like, what is the work I want to do? Do I want to be in a classroom learning more theory? Or do I want to be working with people in communities learning by living? Yeah, those are all really good points and questions. Um, and I think, especially as like human rights minors and people studying the humanities, I think that is a really common theme where you learn the most outside of the classroom. So it's like, what does it mean to do this kind of work in academia and how will that connect to your next steps? Alina, do you want to jump in and maybe talk about your, your thought process and experiences in deciding to do academia to pursue this work or jump in on a different point? I think we, so I had a similar experience to Carson and that like part of the reason I wanted to do the master's program is because I was like, I don't know if I want to do law school, PhD or none of the above. Next. I kind of cheated because um, like I, I did a master's program, so I was in academia, but I did a master's program in Northern Ireland. So like part of the draw for me was that like I was going to a community and like, so I kind of had the best of both worlds, which was amazing. And I don't think that that, that was, I think I would have been very unhappy if I had gone like gone straight from like Stanford to like Oxford or Cambridge or like something in the Golden Triangle in the UK um, or another graduate school in the US because like that was like as Ibrahim said that was the best part of my learning was like learning from people who who could tell you when like an academic article was full of it because they lived it um, and and then and then like so similar to Carson like I was I actually like the master's program did not help me decide whether I should go to law school or PhD. What helped me decide was taking the LSAT, <laughs> which oh, I discovered LSAT. that this was not for me. <laughs> not because I couldn't do well on it, but because I hated every part of it so much. <laughs> um, and and then I was really fortunate. So like. I think like for me, what I also discovered is that like, I really like the classroom and I really like theory, but you also have to make sure that like the way you're doing that theory, if you care about impact is that you're doing it about a problem and with a perspective that like where it makes sense because like some things don't need to be theorized, they just need money, 
So like Mark Bentioff, who's like a philanthropist in San Francisco, like gave a huge donation to UCSF to study homelessness. He could have just given that money to to solve homelessness, right? So like it's it's things like that where you just like I think like in academia you need to be careful. Like I think what I'm doing now is like I'm theorizing about like how big tech is impacting state sovereignty. And that is like definitely um a, a topic where like I can see a clear need for theory because the conversations we have around tech just like ignore power and that like that that it affects how we think about solutions and structuring things. So that was something where I'm like, yes, I can use my like skills in academia to have like an impact in a way that's true, but I don't necessarily think that's the case for everything. So I think if you, you can definitely do academia and still be impactful, but like you do need to be like thoughtful about it if impact is indeed like the thing that you care about. I think those are all really good points. Um, and I kind of want to dig into and not only thinking about the scholarships, but the programs, the dissonance between the way that they are pitched and sort of what you got out or thought you would get out of that kind of experience. And do you think that there's a, a way in which these scholarships are packaged either by the scholarship um, organizers themselves or by the student body at Stanford that you think is wrong? And then maybe also the way that it is, right? And what now having gone through the process, what would you say to sort of dispel the rumors? Um, I feel like maybe I can, I'll just jump in, add some stuff on this, because um, I feel from what all, all of you have been saying, you know, it's been really getting me thinking about like what happened a few years ago and how I made these decisions and even what my time at Oxford was like. Um, so I think I should preface with like, I didn't just apply to the roads, I, I applied to like five scholarships and got totally denied from like all of them. Like I was so sad. Um, which is totally fine. And like, I've, you know, come to terms with it. And um, then was very uh, lucky to find another scholarship that was a good fit for me. Um, and, you know, figure that out. Um, but basically, like my understanding of, well, specifically the roads, maybe I can talk most to that one, because that's when I got the furthest in, I guess, before they denied me. Uh, but they really, it seemed like focused on academic rigor, maybe like intellectual vitality, but the, the way that the interview was set up, it was even in such a way that they throw these random questions at you to test how much you know, how you can argue, um, like if you're a good debater or not. And so that was my experience with the roads. Um, later on, and I can talk maybe more about this later about how I found the Rotary Scholarship, but uh, I ended up applying for and receiving the Rotary Foundation Scholarship and they do a lot of international service work. Um, and so more of their interview with me, I mean, actually their interview I felt like was much more difficult than the Rhodes because they really dug into like who I was as a person and like wanted to know like what drives me and like what my moral values were and how I was serving my community and like what I wanted to do with my future and how I was going to continue to serve my community. So all of that was based on service work and um, like what, what drives you as a person rather than trying to make you crack during the interview. Um, so I feel like even within the interview process, I could tell that there was a big difference. Um, but then even like going on in, as a Rotary, Rotary scholar, I guess later on, 
um, like they created a community where we did community service together and there was a lot of support about around the community work we were doing and they wanted to help support our like our goals for serving our communities. Um, so that was like really impactful for me and like made a big difference for me as an Oxford student. At the same time, like I still went to Oxford where there wasn't really a focus on community work or community service. And I didn't expect it to hit me as hard as it did. I think I, I thought that my Stanford experience would be quite similar to my Oxford experience. What I didn't calculate for was that I was in this really connected and like really loving Native community, Native American students community um, on campus, as well as like a lot of other students who really cared about community work and serving their own communities. Um, and so I just didn't calculate for like what a different kind of academic experience I would have when I didn't have those people around me and didn't have that connection around me and didn't have people who were supporting community work. So I started at the my socio-legal studies program and you know everybody there was wonderful and great and really invested in the work that they're doing and a lot of them are also you know invested in serving community as well um, but it's still from like an academic lens and then often when you are in that kind of ivory tower it's really easy I think for people to forget about the work that they're doing and what their objectives are and how they should be respectfully serving people and so really early on from like a variety of different presentations and conversations I've had with people, I recognized that people were doing research in a way that was actually really quite disrespectful. It's, I mean, I noticed this specifically with indigenous communities, but that's because I was interacting with research relating to ind indigenous communities the most, where like people were going in, doing research without establishing like prior connections to the community, like publishing their work, but in a language different from what the community spoke, so the community would never benefit from it um like kind of being quite deceptive to the community about what their objectives were and what their work was and it was i just kind of found it appalling like i was i, I think at least at stanford i would have gone like i would have had lots of other native students around me who would have been like yeah this is messed up we need to talk about this but because the way oxford structured it's so isolating um it was really difficult for me to find other indigenous students and then once i did like we really pushed towards like starting a group and like having these conversations in our center but like it really took like a lot of time and effort on the part of like indigenous students and students of color to like bring those conversations into places where they should already be happening um so that's you know even when i was in a scholarship group that really took care of me and was focused on community building and community support the institution i was still at most of the time didn't really focus on that i didn't care about that um, or was really quick to dismiss, um, you know, like how indigenous communities and other marginalized communities and communities of color were being impacted by their research. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answered the question, but, you know, I just, I think that's worth thinking about. And, you know, when you make those choices and decide where to go in the future, really considering where you're putting yourself and, um, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily gonna be the same kind of community you had at Stanford. Those are really good points. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, just like, yeah, there was just like so many golden points that, that Carson touched on. Um, I, I think we should talk about rejections. I think we need to normalize rejections more. Uh, more. So I, I got rejected so, I mean, out the, I got rejected so many times uh, during senior year, right? 
And afterwards, I applied to the Rhodes and Marshall twice. I got rejected twice. I, I applied to the Fulbright twice, to two separate countries, got rejected twice. I applied uh, to the Gardner Foundation um, uh, Service Fellowship, rejected. Ford Fellowship, rejected. International Human Rights Service Fellowship, rejected, right? So these were this all happened senior year and afterwards, and it was devastating. I mean, I was lost. I graduated from Stanford University thinking I was a failure, right? Um, and that's heartbreaking, right? That is, I mean, it was hard for me, but thinking that I'm probably not alone in that is like so sad because being at Stanford, Stanford is a very hard place, let alone graduating, is a victory for literally anyone. So these, the, the way in which these scholarships are posed, right? It, I would have been, I mean, it's fine to be rejected, but it's not fine to be devastated by rejection. And I, and the fact that I was devastated, devastated and, and it didn't just kind of roll off my back, I think, I, I think that's telling to, to kind of how make, how, how these scholarships are positioned sometimes in that it's kind of like a make or break, right? Like if I don't get this, then it's the end of um, me being a reputable human rights practitioner. And I know that's silly. I, it's so silly for me to even, I don't even, that's like not even in my framework now, two years afterwards, but that's definitely how I felt um, when I was a senior uh, about to graduate Stanford as my other friends were gaining those badges, right? Those six figure jobs and big name tech companies on their resumes, right? Like just kind of flawlessly getting, uh, knowing their path and getting it. And so, I mean, I think one, one, one thing that Carson said and that we're all kind of realizing is that it is the point of community. And I, and I think when we're in community, community that's, that's what really saves us. Um, and that was something that I wasn't aware of. I knew community was important at Stanford, but I didn't really cultivate and foster my academic community, my human rights community. Um, and, you know, of course, uh, the, the Human Rights Center was, is, was new, it was maybe like, what, four or five years old, um, still kind of, I mean, I, Alina was in the first human rights class, I was in the second human rights class. So it was still expanding and the human rights community, I think, was still buddy, budding at that point. And so, so for me, I think what went wrong, right, I think what went wrong was that I didn't have a clear sense of what a human rights career was. Um, and now I do, uh, by, by kind of just doing the work, by doing it, by going into these, go, going, like diving into these questions I had, these places I wanted to learn more about, these languages I wanted to learn of, um, and just going there, right, and seeing how, how boundless the opportunities are in, in, in human rights, and it's not, it's not, it, I mean, doing it through academia, doing it through these fancy scholarships is like one grain on this vast human rights beach. <laughs> uh, one grain of sand on this vast human rights beach. Like there's so many ways in which you can do meaningful, good work. And the vast majority is outside of the classroom. And so um, I, I think, I think like, yeah, I, I just want to repeat my point of how important community is and community is what saves us and, and staying close to the people who think like you, who care about similar issues, 
who kind of light you up and motivate you and and make you think, wow, cool, that's like something I want to do too, right? That those types of people are so important because they don't they not only like give you ideas of of how to like do human rights work, but like it helps you feel not alone, right? That like, okay, if I don't get this or if I need to run an idea, if I need someone to edit my essay, like I can go to these if I can go to these people. So, yeah, I I, I mean. Rejection is devastating, especially when everyone around you seems like they're getting everything. But we are so lucky as human rights practitioners to 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 be in this field because there's so many things that we can do. I want to follow up to what both of you were saying about the path that you thought you needed to take and then the one that ended up working out, because I feel like a lot of times things do work out in the best way. Um, and I wanted to get your thoughts on what ended up going right that in retrospect you're like oh this is actually what I want to do and I think you both kind of touched on that and to figuring out what exactly is more meaningful for you but if you could kind of elaborate not only on maybe for example Carson the scholarship you received that was a better fit or in Ibrahim's case going to Indonesia and maybe feeling that that experience was more meaningful than sticking to academia right after graduation Um, if you have any additional thoughts you want to add on that question yeah. So, so yeah, like what, what the path that actually worked. So, I mean, after graduating, I didn't have a plan. Um, I had like uh, the, I had a summer internship fellowship from the Haas Center at, um, it was the Sandhill Philanthropy Fellowship. So I was placed in a um, philanthropy serving organization called Grantmakers Concern for Immigrants and Refugees. And that was helpful in that it kind of like, oh, this is what I'm doing for the next few months. So when people asked me, what are you doing after graduation? I had to answer. Um, But I think what really helped me was moving back home. So I'm lucky enough to have a really loving and supporting family. And I'm from Orange County, California. That's where I am right now. And I spent a a year at home. Um, I graduated in 2018, spent the summer in the Bay, and then moved back home in the fall, spent that entire um, year, uh, 2018 to 2019, uh, at home, and then went to Indonesia afterwards. And what I did at home was, I mean, the difference between being at home and thinking about my future and my career paths and and being at Stanford and thinking about my career, future and career paths was night and day, right? At home, there was no noise. I could cancel out what everyone else was doing. And I could really ask myself, like, what do I want? Like, what do I want to, what do I want out of these next few years, right? What questions do I have? What ideas do I want to complicate? And, and, And... what ideas do I want to complicate and just being in a place where I could do that where I could just kind of first collapse and like mourn (laughs) how difficult uh, it has been but then also like kind of find my light again um, that was really really important and so I I, I encourage people if they if they're feeling lost um, I think changing your environment can help you kind of find your path again Uh, because there's a lot of noise at Stanford um, and it's really hard to cancel it out sometimes. Uh, and so w- how I ended up on, on East Java in Indonesia was, I, I mean, when I asked myself, like, what do I want? What, what, what questions do I want answered? Um, I knew that, like, one of the best moments during undergrad was when I was in Greece working with refugees and uh, refugees in a refugee camp. And I knew that uh, I had some cultural insight uh, as a Muslim, as someone who studied uh, Middle Eastern history during undergrad, who's pretty good at learning languages, um, 
but I also wanted to learn more about like what uh, what is an Islamic society, right? Like what does it mean to be Muslim? What does it mean to pursue human rights in a Muslim context, which is some which is often viewed as uh, mutually exclusive, right? Like human rights and Islam are often framed as as in conflict. And so I hadn't I haven't lived in a Muslim majority country um, before. I was born and raised in the U.S. Um, I didn't know about Southeast Asia at, at all, really. Um, not, that's not fair. I should give myself more credit. I, I knew about its history, but I didn't, you know, I didn't interrogate it as much as I did in, um, as much as I did in Middle Eastern history. And, you know, this was like one of the largest Muslim populations in the world. And also, weirdly enough, Southeast Asia is kind of left out in a lot of Islamic studies circles. And so I knew that that was a place I wanted to go. And I think when I submitted my applications, when I interviewed, the specificity, the confidence, the clarity really shined through because I applied to four fellowships after I graduated and I got every single one, right? Um, and it's not because I am exceptionally talented. It's because I took time to really be intentional with what I wanted these next few years to be. So I had been, let's see, I'm trying to, most of the rejections had happened in like the October, November time period of my senior year. Um, and so I went into winter break knowing that I, there was maybe like one or two scholar, one one scholarship left that I hadn't heard back from, but basically at that point was pretty confident that I didn't have any funding coming my way. Um, but I still really, really wanted to go to the UK. Um, and there were a variety of reasons for that, one of which being I really enjoyed my period of um, studying abroad in the UK and wanted to be able to continue that for a little while longer. Um, the other thing was at you know, once again, I kind of talked about this. I was like really convinced that I wanted to do a master's. I was like, I need to know if I want to do this research. So um, the, the master, I was really convinced I want to do master's and I'm glad that I did. I don't like have any regrets about it. Um, but I, it did, and it did really help me get a better idea of what academia looks like and um, better understand the research that I am doing, whether that's with my indigenous communities or outside of those communities. Um, and then additionally, and I, Alina knows this a little bit, but uh, I have a boyfriend that lives in the UK and had been dating him for a while. So there was also like a very big personal um, incentive to move to the UK and just get to do a close distance relationship for a little bit because um, I just really wanted to be in the same place as some of the people that I loved. So that was one of the factors that helped contribute to deciding where I was going to go. Um, so basically, I applied to all of the schools that I had applied for through the Rhodes and the, Mi the, Rhodes and the Mitchell and the Marshall um, again. Um, so I think I put in like, you know, five or six applications for grad school and probably didn't need to do that many, but um, found out like around, I don't know, March that I had gotten into to these different programs. Um, and basically from there, like still didn't have any funding and like wasn't going to be able to realistically afford to go to these master's programs. So I didn't have any plan. I just had these acceptance letters, but like realistically, like no place to go from there. Um, so then what I started doing is I reached out. I mean, I'm pretty sure I reached out to Alina like multiple times on this 
like this journey um, and asked about, you know, what does funding look like, you know, and all these different locations. I went back to Batchel on multiple occasions and was like, I really want to go to the UK. Like what kind of funding opportunities are there? Like, where should I look? I reached out to some of the people that I had met when I was at Oxford um, studying abroad who were currently master's students there, American master's students, and asked them like for some advice. Um, and Betchel gave me like some scholarship ideas, but like really I, I didn't find out much information rather than, you know, there are some scholarships available. They're quite difficult to get your hands on. Um, if you do get one, you probably won't find out till about June. At that point, that felt quite late to me because I think similarly to way probably everyone here feels is that when you're getting ready to graduate Stanford, like you feel like you need to know what you're doing. Like everybody's asking you from, I don't know, November of your senior year, what you're going to do. Um, and I felt also a little bit of pressure from my family to know what I was doing, where I was going to go. Um, so anyways, like was in this big process of not knowing what I was going to do. Um, Betchel had sent a few opportunities my way. So I just decided like to apply for them. Honestly, like I was trying to at that point balance classwork and all these other things that I'd kind of put on the back burner while I'd been applying to the scholarships previously in the fall. So I kind of did these scholarships quite quickly. One of them, which was at, um, was at Queens in Belfast, like was a scholarship they had at Queens. Another one was the Rotary Foundation, which I ended up receiving, but like basically didn't know what I was doing until about April, May. Um, so that's all to say that like the process was a really long one. Like it wasn't just finding out where I was going or what I was doing or where the scholarship money would come from in November. It was like scrambling around, honestly, like a chicken with my head caught off for months, not knowing what I was doing. There was a lot of crying. I'm sure I remember there was a lot of crying. Um, but yeah, eventually figured it out and figured out where I was going. Um, but I do think you know, that Ibrahim's advice of like getting away from the space that you're in and just having time to reflect and realistically like be with those that you love and, and care about to help redirect you is quite useful. I felt really, I mean, really stressed out um, after I graduated from Stanford the whole summer um, before going to Oxford. And then honestly, like I, I didn't start to feel calm until I don't know, some way mid through that this year where I realized that it actually doesn't matter. Like there are so many ways that, um, that I can create impact with my communities. Like I've been talking to my tribal elders quite a lot and they've kind of reassured me and given me the advice of like, you don't need to do another degree. Like you don't need these things. Like you can just serve your community or serve your tribe or, you know, contribute the way to, to the community in the way that you want. And then additionally, like, you know, my relationship with my family is really good right now. My relationship with my significant others, like very healthy. And so like just having these people in my life who are quite supportive and who have like reassured me that like, we love you no matter what, it doesn't matter if you, like if you hadn't gone to Oxford, if you hadn't gone to Stanford, like it wouldn't have mattered. Like that doesn't define who you are. I think so frequently we define ourselves by these, like by success. And um, I think, you know, to some extent, like getting into Stanford confirmed that like, confirmed that 
being successful was part of my, like being academically successful was part of my identity. And if I lost that, like I didn't know who I was. So that like November, December period of like not knowing what I was doing and not getting any of these opportunities helped me like redefine who I was and like what I wanted to do and what makes Carson Smith. It's not this amorphous academic blob, you know, she has other qualities. So, um, yeah. I, I want to jump in really quickly because I think both of those points are just so great. And I remember I had lunch with you the day you found out you got the Rotary Scholarship and you were just so happy, Carson. Um, but like, I really want to jump off of like two points that you guys said. So like all of my rejections have come every single time I've tried to leave academia. I don't know what that says about me or academia, but like, um, like when I finished my master's program. So like in some ways I like escaped the like, cause I think, I think both of you mentioned it. Like when you're at Stanford, your final year, like literally you show up like the first day of class, September 23rd. And everyone's like, so what are you doing next year? And you're like, I don't know, please stop asking me. Um, and it's, I mean, like I had friends, I think I said this before, like I had friends who would lie. Like I had a friend who like did not have a job, was going home and like made up an organization and a company and a position just to like get people to stop. Like it's, I cannot underestimate how like genuinely stressful and like hard it is, especially when like one as a human rights student, like the CS people are already a little bit like judgmental of you um, or like the business people are judgmental of you. And then, and then they're going and they're getting like, I don't know, like people who work at consulting firms, it's also hard because they can like live their lives. Like they can afford things. And like, I'm not like, I'm not very materialistic, but it is like a big deal in terms of like your ability to like be independent or to like think about making decisions for like a partner or a family or buying a house. Like that's like a real thing. And it's like very stressful. Um, but like, I think the, anyways, the point I wanted to make is that, um, like for me, so I actually had like a very interesting experience where like after I finished my master's degree, I went home and applied for jobs like outside academia and got rejected from every single one. Um, and there were so many of them because you applied jobs so quickly, but I actually ended up getting a job on like a big like research project. And I actually ended up moving like across the country to start it. And when I like got there for orientation, it became like very clear that this was an incredibly unethical project that was like really negatively going to impact communities. And it, it was just like, it was just like textbook things that you would learn in like a basic ethics class about like how to not interact with communities and like what will cause harm. And they did everything. And so I ended up quitting. And actually a lot of people ended up quitting, but that was like very, very hard. And I ended up moving back home for like a year and like just to uh, like, jump off Ibrahim's point like on the one hand I'm really glad I moved home and it was certainly like a way to recharge and like like to to, to cancel out the noise but it was also really really hard like in part because my family was like hey we paid a ton of money for you to go to a very expensive school you wanted to do human rights which like we're supportive of but like how are you going to make money like are you going to live at home until you're like 25 um and that was really really hard to like balance to like try to like reach your center and to be like, no, I want to, like, it doesn't matter that I went to Stanford, like, I want to serve people, I want to do something that's impactful, while at the same time, like, balancing your community's expectations, like, about you, so, um, so, but as long as you just, like, for me, it was just, like, coming back to being, like, 
I, I kind of as Carson said, like the most important thing is like to impact is impact and thinking about how you want to serve your community and the type of world you want to create for everybody. And then thinking about yourselves and your skills and how you want to fit into that, which is really, really hard, but um, worthwhile. Those are all really amazing points and very helpful for me as somebody in college still trying to reconcile the cognitive dissonance that I think um, a lot of students feel about what they should be doing versus what they actually want to be doing. Um, and I want to take us kind of interrogate something that you all have already talked about, but in clarifying not only what you wanted to do afterwards, but then also silencing a lot of the noise that comes out of Stanford. Are there particular mentors that or people or friends or family that helped you to think through a lot of the conclusions that you've come across now or the particular moments in your postgrad plan that you found were really clarifying that maybe you want to elaborate a bit more on? You know, I think as Stanford students, we're so used to having a database to search. <laughs> for opportunities or a website to, that has a list of fellowships. And I mean, that's just not the case, right? Like you, I, I think, I mean, this is a little terse, I know, but I think one thing that one great skill you can learn is to be a self-advocate and like doing the research. Yes, it sucks that, you know, it's not, there's not a database that we can search. There's not a fellowship. There's not, you know, a tiered fellowship where this is the reach, this is the middle, and this is like something you can get. There's, not, there's nothing like that. But, you know, that's how it is. Uh, and what you can do is create a Google Doc and Excel spreadsheet for yourself so that you can use it and share it with the next person, right? So they don't have to go through that. And so in terms of like actual resources and tools, there's not really anything out there, right? Except your amazing, vibrant community, right? Of, of practitioners who are the same age as you, who are younger than you, who are older than you, who are in... Um, advisory capacities, your former professors, the folks at the Honda Center, uh, the Human Rights Center, uh, Penelope and Jesse. I mean, uh, those are things you already know. Uh, and there are people that you probably know, right, Jesse and Penelope, and you, I, you, you know your own community the best. But I think like learning to be your self-advocate, learning to be a self-advocate, Google, just Googling <laughs> like fellowships in Southeast Asia. That's literally how I found my fellowship. Um, and the, for the uh, Allegheny County Human uh, Department of Human Services one, I searched up fellowships for local local government. That's how I found it, right? So it sucks, it sucks, right? Because it's not what we're used to at Stanford. Um, but that's what we have to do. That's what we have to do. And at the very least, I know every person who's listening to this has four people the voices who are listening, you're listening to right now to help guide and mentor you and, and help you find that. Um, so it's, it's learning to be a self-advocate and then also like bouncing off and channeling the energy from your community to, to help you find these opportunities. I don't have a ton to add to that. I think that was like a fantastic answer. Um, I will say, I'm just going to embarrass Alina. Like Alina was a huge part of me figuring out what I wanted to do. I think after school or like helping me after college and helping me figure out like how to even start applying for those, those things. People like Alina and other people who were just like a few years older than me um, really gave me a lot of support in reading applications, helping direct guide me towards uh, scholarships and opportunities. Um, 
yeah, just giving me feedback in general or like what they had done, or if they didn't have advice for me, they connected me to somebody else they knew in their own network. Um, so that was super useful. And then in, a, in addition to that, like I kind of took uh, advantage of the, like the native alumni community a little bit from Stanford, um, just because like, you know, it's like a close knit community. There were people who really wanted to, to help me and, and lift me up. Um, and now I see it kind of as like, is my duty and my part of giving back to that community is also helping young students or students figure out what they want to do next. Um, yeah, so I agree totally community and reaching out to people who are around you for support and advice and they received advice from people that were a little bit older than them. So they're in most cases very willing to help. Yeah. And yeah, maybe, you know, maybe if community is still a little daunting or maybe, you know, maybe you're still finding your community or making community and that's totally okay too. I mean, I'm definitely, I definitely am, am doing that. I think uh, as Carson said, I think the most helpful people are usually the ones who are a little older than you, right? A couple years older than you um, because they have the most recent information, right? They've been through it recent, uh, they've been through it most recently as well. Uh, and if they don't know the answer, they'll help you open that Google Doc. They'll Google things with you. They'll refer you to people. So I agree. If I know uh, I'm less, I, I kind of I I've, I want to amend kind of my stance on this. I'm kind of taking uh, the fact that people have community for granted. That may not be the case, and maybe you realize that you need to change communities um, after you graduate or your senior year. These are definitely things I I've realized. Um, so power to you and I one thing I will, I will affirm is that you will find your community in the meantime as you're figuring it out yeah lean on lean on those those folks who are a little bit older than you um where we are here to, to help you I just want to add really really quickly what Carson I love you um <laughs> and and definitely it is true like you pay it forward like I give so much help to like students who are younger than me because students who are older than me helped me and I know that like those students will then go out and help others. Um, I just want to plug for like especially people who are um, underclassmen or as Ibrahim said like building their community that like when you start especially at elite institutions like Stanford, like sometimes like the star power, I mean, it's kind of funny, like academic star power is like a different type of celebrity than the Kardashians, but like sometimes like your thoughts are like, I need to go like find the most important person. Like I need to become friends with Condoleezza Rice and like, like follow her around. Um, and I, I have found through like my time at Stanford is that like- I need to interject, even if you have Condoleezza Rice write your record, <laughs> Better, you're going to get rejected by the roads, you're going to get rejected by uh, law schools, and you're going to get rejected by marshals. That's yeah. what happened. <laughs> Annalisa Rice writes a lot more recommendation letters than like, you would expect, actually. Um, <laughs> but like the point being, like, like the professors or mentors or faculty or like whomever who make you, who are like, there's like two, I think two different types of like intelligence that you can discover. There are people who make you feel more intelligent, who, who make you think that they're intelligent by making you feel dumb. Like, and you can tell that in classes when you're listening to them and they're like, that's a, like, like you just feel inadequate. And then there are people who like are so intelligent and they make you make, feel like even more brilliant and they like lift you up and like support you. So like, one of the most important mentors at, at my time at Stanford was a Boston Lani, who's like the director of the Iranian studies program. Like 
just listening to him, like, he is so smart, but also, like, he makes you feel so smart. Like, probably it's, like, deceptive where you're, like, I'm not actually as smart as I feel talking to you. But, like, like, and, and definitely, and that was just, like, and, and so, the uh, same with, like, the Human Rights Center with, like, Penelope and Jesse. Like, these are people who you walk in and you talk to them and you just feel good walking out. Like, you don't feel like you want to cry. Like, you don't feel like they just told you that your proposal is stupid. Like, even if you have, like, challenge or, you know, you're, you, you, you're not, like, it's not up to speed. Like, Penelope has definitely helped me so much where I'm, like, I am just, like, I'm not where I, I need to be or I want to get better. And she's helped me. But I felt good about that afterwards. Like, listen to that instinct, like invest in the people who make you feel good and make you feel supportive. So like in that year that I um, like lived at home, like I did research for Abbas Milani and that was like the most wonderful year. He is like, like the most incredible mentor that I had. He was so supportive. And like, even though he didn't give me like specific advice for like, oh, this is something you should think about for your next step. I felt like so supported and renewed and rejuvenated just to like to be able to talk to him every day and just to be like, this is the type of professor that like I want to be when I grow up. So like while you're building community, like listen to that, like listen to how you feel. And if somebody makes you feel stupid, you are not stupid. That person is not worth investing in. That was amazing. Yeah, I agree. I completely agree to all that. And another plug for Alina um for because <laughs> i also consulted her my sophomore year she was very helpful in I didn't even, yeah alina literally edited my my law school essay like <laughs> so this is what we call selection bias <laughs> <I'm dead. laughs> no i listen to anything alina tells me so this is the takeaway again selection bias i've led you all here to where i am <laughs> Awesome. I love it. Um, kind of jumping off of the note of the dissonance of elitism, of not only trying to do community work and applying to these very prestigious scholarships, but then also recognizing the fact that Stanford is a pretty, it is a very elitist institution. Um, how do you sort of reconcile this elite opportunity that we've been given as Stanford students and alumni uh, with human rights work, um, which often means like more grassroots level community development and causes. Yeah, um, let's see. I'm not, I, I think it's going to take a little while to get a direct answer for me with this. So maybe we can kind of like have a conversation about this. I think, so when you, when you graduate from Stanford, you have an obligation, you have a couple, you have many obligations. Two obligations are that one, you need to spread the privilege and education that you got to communities that don't have them. Every single Stanford graduate is obligated to do that. Um, and two, you need to unlearn the elitist bias that you have. Every Stanford graduate has elitism in them because they come from an elitist institution for four years. It's impossible, it's inevitable. It's not a moral question. It's not a question of if you're a good person or a bad person, you are elitist um, and you have to unlearn that. Um, and so this is not really answering your question, but when I, when I hear people who say I'm doing this it, blank, I'm doing blank to figure it out or because I don't know what I want to do, that's not good enough. It's definitely not good enough for to to go for graduate to go to grad school. It's that's not a good enough reason to go to grad school unless it's like a co-term, which is like <laughs> a semester, <laughs> a semester more. Um, but it's not a good enough reason to apply to the Rhodes or the Marshall or any other big scholarship. Um, and also, it's a 
uh, it's you're you're not fulfilling your obligate your two obligations to unlearn bias, your uh, to unlearn your elitist bias and democratizing the the privilege that you have. Um, and so how I do that, how I view it, is that Stanford gave me this. Stanford has given me a lot of things. One of the things that has come to fore is that it's given me the ability to ask really good questions um, and to kind of interrogate perceived universal truths um, and to see them as things that can change. So for example, like at my work at Allegheny County, um, they're really good at using data analytics. Um, they're like one of the best, they're like nationally acclaimed for doing that. But the a lot of the a lot of the data visualizations and analysis uh, by race is black, white, and other. Still like big strides in government because many governments don't even look at race, right? But other, right? Other, what is other? Uh, in, includes literally everyone else that's not black and white. Um, and so for example, when the undocumented community was facing, I mean, it's, crisis after crisis during um, this administration, there was really no way to help them, right? Um, because the, or, uh, in terms of the um, human service department I was in, there was no way to help them because they didn't know who they were. They didn't have data about on it. Um, so my Stanford degree, I think, helped me see that through a critical lens that black, white, and other is not good enough, right? And that we can, and we, we can expect better and we can, um, make things better. And it was through my, 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 you know, post-colonial learnings and experience with migrant communities, undocumented communities, refugee communities, that allowed me to bring, that allowed me to kind of interrogate that other category more and, and bring it to, 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 to something that meant to, to bring it to something that's, that was more meaningful. So to answer your question, Kira, which you said, like, how, how do we square our elite education and our privilege with grassroots work? That's how I do it. I, I see that Stanford has given, and, and of course through you know mentoring the next generation and, and helping underserved communities be represented in Stanford. Of course, that's, that's also something I'm committed to, but Stanford has given me that ability to ask questions and to speak truth to powerful inst institutions. And they'll listen because I have a Stanford degree, right? Um, which, is, which shouldn't be the case, but that, that is the case. Um, and so that's that's how I do it. Is that I I I use my degree, my my the things the the way that I can ask questions to change institutions in the ways that I can. Yeah, I think it's also going to be difficult for me to like hit maybe the heart of the question immediately. But um, I think I've seen I say I've seen so many uh, friends, people who are older, people that are younger than me apply to things um, like the roads um, and then uh, not receive the roads um, and then then kind of decide that they maybe don't want to go forward um, with going to a master's degree or to, to Oxford or you know to, to wherever afterwards um, and I think that's because a lot of you know some of the people I've had conversations with a lot of people don't and myself included, don't really take the time to maybe think about why, 100% why we're applying and why we're doing that. And if we're just applying to the roads because it is something that is seen as prestigious and is seen as something that's going to make us um, 
more successful, you know, whatever that definition is for us. Um, and so, you know, I agree that we really need to sit down before putting that time and effort into the application, really consider what are you, like, what are your goals for this? Why is the road something that you're applying for? Um, additionally, if you get the roads, like, I mean, this is a scholarship that is based in white supremacy. What are you going to do with that scholarship to make an impact, first of all, on, on the roads itself? And then additionally, you know, at whatever institution that you're at, and then, you know, in your communities afterwards. Um, so that needs to be a conversation that is really leading your application, your decision-making process. Um, and then, you know, additionally, you know, if you decide if you get the roads or if you don't, or if you could decide to go to another prestigious institution, um, the work, you know, I think a lot of us are working on changing Stanford or, or changing the communities, communities that we live in and, and making those communities um, more equitable, um, strengthening those communities, you know, uplifting the voices of, um, of those who are marginalized in our communities. But you need to continue to do that work when you go to Oxford or when you get the rose or wherever, wherever you go after this. Like you can't just leave that back at Stanford or back at home. Like that process needs to go with you um, when you continue forward into that academic institution. Um, so like when I went to, to Oxford, I continued to work with my communities at home. That was critical to me. I wasn't going to Oxford so that I could leave my communities. I was going to Oxford so that maybe I could learn more and then maybe bring that back to, to the work that I wanted to continue, continue doing with my communities or the way that we were going to continue to strengthen our tribal governments, right? So it was critical that I was constantly having conversations with my tribal elders, with other people that were doing this kind of work, like practitioners back at home. Um, and I probably spent, you know, at least an hour to two hours a week having those conversations, making sure that I was centering myself in the right place with my academic degree to continue to make change back at home. Um, and you know, that was really healthy for me too, right? To have like that kind of feedback. And when I didn't have that native community in the UK anymore, I mean, to have people to talk to about that. Um, so that was even like really healthy for the way that, you know, for, for myself. Um, and then additionally, I also think, you know, uh, well, well, making sure that you're still serving your communities at home, like it was then my job to, continue to change Oxford to have these conversations about, um, you know, indigenous communities and the research that was happening. And I was in a really privileged position. And so if I just ignored those conversations that were happening in the research that was going on and the research practices that were going on, I was letting a whole class of, I mean, a whole class of people continue to do research that way. Um, so even I think little conversations um, can make an impact, but, like that work needs to continue when you when you go to Oxford. And I, you know, I certainly need to continue to check my elitism and I need to continue to redefine what success is for me. Um, so that's going, I think, going to think, I think going to be a lifelong process, right? Like that's something that I need to continuously check myself on. Um, and, you know, all Stanford and Oxford students certainly do. Um, but some of the, that work I think can be done by continuing to be connected at home, but also changing the institutions that you're working in. Yeah. I think very quickly, I think both of those are good points. I think one of the unique things I've noticed about elitism with the Stanford slash Silicon Valley flavor is it's sort of like, I noticed this like especially with like engineering is that 
there's something about the myth of Silicon Valley in which like it's never happened before. And like all of a sudden young people are like way smarter about like engineering than like older people in a way that like it doesn't, it's not quite replicated in politics in the same way as it is with like computers where like this like cohort of like young white tech bros basically were like, oh my God, I think we can like code something and change the world. And they did like accumulate a lot of power, but that doesn't mean they necessarily knew what they were doing. Um, but it does kind of bleed into like, like more political or like, you know, like other aspects of Stanford in which I feel like there's this sort of sense and it ties into the elitism like more generally too but like there's this sort of sense that like because you're a Stanford student you should have some like like you should have a solution to something at the end of four years like so like as a human rights student the way that that can like manifest is like okay well you did four years of human rights degree as a Stanford student what's your solution to human rights and you're like I don't know I'm 20 like I've spent four years at Stanford like reading books um, they're like how are you going to solve the refugee crisis you're what? like, you're like you? I don't know that's where the mind to this <laughs> yeah so I think that so that can so that that has two sets of ramifications one is that just because you're a Stanford student or whatever elitist institution or blah 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 you're st at the end of like your Stanford degree you're probably like 20 or 21 like across the board 20 year year olds don't know what's happening right like you're not supposed to you're like very young so you're not supposed to know what's happening internally you're not supposed to have it figured out like have you seen the tv show friends like they're in their 20s they're figuring out their lives like that's like right like that's like a normal process of like like human life like you're young and you're like figuring it out you're not like the, your stanford degree does not give you a like pass on growing up um, and so like be kind to yourself, like be kind and like acknowledge that and acknowledge that process and be like, okay, like the Stanford degree and experience is like one aspect, but that does not mean that I have some unique knowledge about like either myself or what I should do. And the same and the same in terms of like how you think about going forward. So like for me, I was like, I don't know anything that's going on. How can I like a, a good question also to ask yourself is like, how can I learn more? Right? Like, like we talk about human rights practice, human rights practice doesn't mean that like, you know how to solve human rights now and you're just like going out and doing it. Human rights practice means that you're like, okay, like I'm gonna acknowledge my positionality as someone who probably got like quite a um, elite education in terms of like theory or the law or like some aspects of human rights. And I'm gonna use like that aspect to like, go out and do work and learn more and like see how the puzzle piece of me can fit into the puzzle of putting together human rights right so like it it is both like anti-elitist but it's also a way to think about like taking pressure off yourself right like at the end of your four years at stanford don't you're not going to have solved human rights you're just going to have like gained certain amounts of knowledge to be able to go out and like continue this like journey of like working within the human rights community to collectively solve problems so like i think it kind of goes back to that question kira like for me the way i think about it is like positionality like i am i am not the queen i am one piece of a huge puzzle of human rights and that I'm in an acad academic puzzle, but there's tons of other puzzle pieces that are all working together. Puzzle might not be the best metaphor, I'm really milking it, but um, that's, that's sort of how like I think about it.
I love it. I, lo I love that, Alina. I think, yeah, I think the, the years, the 10 years after you graduate from Stanford is a time to figure out what doesn't work. It's not a time to figure out what works. It's a time to figure out what doesn't work, right? Like I went to East Java and I realized, man, I cannot be a 25 hour flight away from my family. I can't, I can't do that, right? I, I can't go to, I, I went to East Java and I realized I can't go to a country if I don't know the language. It's not, that's not okay. Um, I, and, and those truths are so important. They will guide you. And, and, and those truths are, are, are what will guide you forward. So, I mean, I, I think we need to reframe. It's not, you're not doing this to figure it out. You're doing this to figure out what you what you don't want to do, <laughs> what yeah. doesn't work for you, right? Uh, so that one day maybe you're at a point where you can say, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling good. And I just want to pick up on the piece because I think it's so, so critical. And Carson, you kind of talked about that too. It's like, I don't know what it is about Stanford or elite institution or the globalist elite or whatever that like, you are so judged for making decisions based on loved ones. So like, if I had, like, I could, I felt so much, I could never tell somebody, like, I want to do this because I want to be close to my family. Or, like, I want to do this because I have a partner. Like, people would be like, are you crazy? Like, you should take a rationalist approach to your career and, like, move wherever you can move. And, like, that does, that, like, it applies to, like, banking and finance, but it also applies to human rights work in which, like, there's this assumption, like, like, can you move to East Java or like, can you move to Cambodia? And, and you feel this pressure because on the one hand, you're like, I really want to be embedded in like the communities that like I um, like that, that I want to do human rights work in. But on the same, like at the same time, one, you have to think about your own communities and two, you just have to like think about things that make your life worth living. And we're sort of thinking, I think we're having this framework while talking about like human rights practice as your career, as your job. And that's like one way to think about like human rights or your practice but like you can live human rights or you can live positive impact in so many different ways so like for me one of the big things that i learned about myself in the past year was like one of the big reasons i love academia is i love teaching like i love these types of interactions and these types of relationships i really don't like work relationships where you don't have the same type of mentorship i i just i love the like student teacher relationship like from all aspects of it and like that's one way that like I live that human rights truth or like think about my impact is I'm like I get to like talk to like amazing students like you and like help you a little tiny bit in like your journey and then when you go out and do like wonderful things I'm like I kind of helped like you know um and that's like that's very small but like I you know that's that's important and like those are things you can do you can have whatever you know your job, quote unquote, your career does not define yourself. Like you, you can think about all these different ways to like think about um, how you're living your truth. So yeah, that's my tiny little spiel. I think Ibrahim mentioned this, but Alina and Carson also did just like getting out of the bubble is so important. I wanted to ask like what your next steps are and like what, like where you see yourself going after, after this, just like more personal, I guess. And like, so I know Abraham, you're applying to law school, like why law school and like, what do you hope to do from that? Or Carson, like, what do you hope to do now after your master's? I think the last thing I, I, I wanted, I would want to say is that human rights work is hard, but we are very lucky to be doing human rights work. And the reason why is that whatever op opportunity you take up or that comes to you, whatever work you do, whatever path you take, you're going to be helping others. Um, and I'm confident that even the fact that you're listening to this podcast 
chalks you up as a very thoughtful and considerate person and that there's no wrong path, whether it's going back home, whether it's taking a break, whether it's making a decision based on a loved one, um, whether it's going far away also. Um, there's no wrong thing you can make. Uh, there's no wrong decision you can make. Um, and I just think that you should tell yourself that you're brilliant more often because you are. Um, and to really live in that, I think as human rights people, we're kind of, we want to be humble. We want to, you know, be a little low key, but I mean, this is a time where hum the people devoted to human rights are kind of like saving our country. I'm sorry. Like, how can we not talk about it? <laughs> I mean, how can we not talk about like the power of grassroots community about community centered work? Um, in, and the results it has made for us in the past few days even, right? And you are brilliant. You can ask great questions. You can be a representative. You can share power. You can be anti-elitist. You can be anti-racist. Um, and these are all things that I know you're committed, committed to um, and that at the very least you have those things and that, that will guide you to, to, to doing really wonderful things for people who you care about and for the communities that need that need you. Um, maybe one thing I would add is that, so I guess recently uh, I've been re receiving a lot of comments from, I mean, Alina was one of them, my supervisor was another person um, with people saying, Carson, you look like you, you look so healthy right now. You look like you seem so happy or, and realistically, like it's a hundred percent because my master's is over. Like I found, I found like this academic, I, I mean, part of this is there's a lot of, you know, current global circumstances that have made this more difficult. Um, but, you know, I, I found this academic experience like really difficult in like actually life draining to a certain extent. And it really, it just took a lot of the energy out of me. Um, and, I found myself just like happier after that's over, uh, after that, you know, after I finished that degree. But additionally, like I was on a call with a bunch of uh, conflict resolution practitioners the other day, people all over the world um, who are just working with their communities to do interpersonal dispute resolution. And I was just so alive. Like I was at that point where you're like, you get off of a call and like, you're just like on this like conversational high. You're like, oh wow, this is fantastic. Like, I'm connecting with these people. And maybe it's just like some sort of like extreme extrovertism. I'm not sure, but like it felt, it felt great. Like, and I, I think just being on that call, being on other calls with people um, doing, you know, indigenous peacemaking work back at home really cements for me that the work that I need to be doing um, you know, needs to be constantly with, with communities. I mean, I, I don't foresee myself being the kind of person who um, will fare well in an academic bubble or, um, you know, just being disconnected from, from people. Um, so I think just pay attention to yourself, like try to figure out what, what makes you tick, like what makes you happy, like the people that you want to be around. Um, and it's okay if like, you're not happy 
in academia, if Stanford wasn't the place for you, if wherever you did your grad school, if you choose to do grad school, if that's not a good place for you, if your work environment's not a good place for you, right? Like whatever that circumstance is for you, pay attention to how you're feeling and make the decisions that you think are going to be the best for your happiness, for your well-being. Um, like, like Alina was saying earlier, like part of that decision for me was also being with the people I, I loved, being able to actually have a, a healthy, close distance relationship with my romantic partner, something that I'd never really gotten to experience before because I was separated um, from, from family and, you know, um, my partner by being at Stanford. Um, and that's brought me a lot of joy too. So I, I think, you know, give yourself the space and room you need to think, but also it's okay to make decisions that everybody else isn't making. And it's okay for those decisions to be aligned with community, with partners, with family, and just with your happiness. Yeah, I just want to echo that because I think that's like a perfect ending. And so like, the only thing I want to add is like, I think sometimes, especially when, when you want to do something like human rights, there's this idea that like, you need to suffer because like, human rights can be really hard and it can be really tragic and like hard and like, um, and that's not to say that human works, human rights isn't hard, but I think also like listen to yourself when things aren't working out and like don't needlessly self-sacrifice or like do something where you're unhappy, whether that's academia or not, just because you think it's like worth it, it because like you have to. So like, there's a lot of really thing like a lot of things that are like quite important, like important work that like you can't do or like you don't want to do or like you're not good at or like you shouldn't do that somebody else can do. And that's like fine. So, like for me, it was sort of like the opposite experience of Carson where like I felt like like I love academia. Like I have that conversational high when I get off like like class conversation. And I'm like, yeah, let's like continue theorizing. Um, but I felt like this pressure to like get out of academia because I was like, oh my God, like I'm not, I'm not connected to community and I'm going to be in this ivory tower and, um, and like, and also like the elitism of being in academia kind of wears on you, um, because you're like, oh, like, God, this is so unethical to like be surrounded by this most wealth. But, but ultimately I like, I discovered like, okay, like, yes, you're never going to be able to fit into it. Like there is no perfect, perfect institution, whether you choose to work in government or in NGOs or within the Westphalian state system, like these systems are imperfect and like, you're going to have to work within them. And you just need to like, think about like ways um, to do that in, in ways that like feel right to you and like work well for you. So like, I'm very, very happy now in academia, like theorizing about big tech and how it's bad. Um, and I'm so happy, right? And I'm really, really glad that I didn't like push myself to do something where, um, um, where, where I didn't feel like I was giving a hundred percent. And there's like a really good quote, um, from Brene Brown who said like, you cannot give from an empty vessel. And I think that's just like, so, so true, especially in human rights, which is like, if you don't feel like good about what you're doing, like you are not going to be able to serve others. Um, so self-care is not selfish. So, um, that's sort of my, my last point is to just like listen to yourself and trust yourself. Thank you so much, Ibrahim, Carson, and Alina for taking the time to talk about how you've thought about and have taken steps to integrate human rights into your postgraduate plans. If you enjoyed our conversation, you can find more podcasts from the Rights Pod wherever you were listening to this one. 
To keep human rights close to your home, be sure to subscribe to The Rights Pod wherever you get your podcasts. The views reflected in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Stanford Center for Human Rights.